If ads give you a pain in the nads or the nadettes, join us now on our new subscription model on Apple. It's all ad free. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is podcast time. The other podcast that makes economics comprehensible. We haven't said this for a long time, John. No. More uh, <laughs> intelligible. It does, does it? John and I were having this conversation off air on various pubs around and where to watch football and rugby matches. And you have vouched for Gleason's. For an afternoon of sport, an afternoon, an evening of sport. Yes, I know. We have prime view. So I'm good and with I'm that. And I'm such a nice I guy. I could be anywhere. You could be, I'm taking my mother-in-law to the boozer oh. to watch. How nice am I to watch the games? <laughs> anyway, John has just been in London. How was it? London was brilliant. London was really good. I was over there for the podcast show. and Podcast uh, show? Tell me about that. I know, yeah. It was a big two-day podcast conference. People talking podcasting. There's only so much you can talk about podcasting. <laughs> no, we- you know, you just get on and do it. But the good news is that it's in, as an industry, as a sector of the media, it's in rude health. Oh, well, that's very good to know. <laughs> that is very good to know. Do you know what I've always noticed about these conferences, right? Particularly things like podcasting is you realize the really only thing that qualifies you to discuss really confidently mm-hmm. at a podcast conference is never having really done a podcast yourself. Yes, yeah, well... <laughs> all these people get up and say, I'll tell you about podcasting. There, there's an element to that. And and what, what what I did find interesting was that there was an awful lot of the so-called experts who only started podcasting during COVID. If COVID never happened, I kind of... Like, it, COVID was a big boon to podcasting, which is a good thing. It's a great thing. Yeah, but uh, a lot of the experts are only kind of, you know, two years... Two years. At maximum. Into podcasting. But there was a lot of interesting people. It has to be said, there was a lot of interesting people. There was a lot of interesting stuff said. I met up with a lot of, um, actually, I met up, bumped into a whole lot of old BBC World Service guys. Did you work for the BBC World Service? Yeah, that was me, Mac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I hope you trashed your expense account. (laughs) I sure did. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you were in the UK, though. I've been watching UK. I don't want to talk about UK politics, but I do want to talk about the ramifications of the rain of Boris on a variety of things. I want to talk a little bit about the protocol. I want to talk about how they weaponize Ireland all the time. But I also want to talk about uh, the country, the economy that is the UK. Yeah. But they're in a terrible state but, of chassis over there the last but, couple of days. But it was, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I spent a day with an old friend of mine walking around London and uh, old college mate. It was great fun. 
chit-chatting away. But I was amazed at the amount of building that was going on. And, you know, there was, they were erecting all sorts of new offices and regeneration. And London is, like, it is vibrant. It's always been vibrant. But it's constantly regenerating itself and looks really cool and all the rest. Busy with loads of people. You know, you wouldn't quite realise that there's a crisis going on over there. Well, what we'll do is we'll talk about precisely that. And it's, it's all countries live and die by innovation, right? Yeah. This idea of economics being about things like prices and wages, it's not. Economics is all about making small adjustments to things to make them better. It's this idea of never let the notion of the perfect bully the good, that you keep yeah. making yeah, yeah, these yeah. small little iterations. And what you find is that the most innovative economies tend largely, tend largely to be evenly spread out they don't put all their eggs in one basket. And they tend to, so for example, if you go to the Scandinavian economies, right, or Germany, they kind of make everything, mm. right? They make mm. everything. They don't say, we're going to bank on this one thing and that's going to be it. And the interesting thing about the UK now, right, and it's a, it's a danger for us in Ireland too, is that we oversell one or two specific sectors and we undersell other sectors. For example, I'm going to give you a little thing before we start. I was talking to a farmer this week, right? Right. And he was talking to me about technology and innovation in agriculture. And he was talking about to me about the extraordinary change in farming in Ireland yeah. due to the introduction of Fitbit for cows, right? right. So you actually put it, it on the cow. Fitter. No, no, no. Just think <laughs> about it. Ireland has a huge, huge cattle herd, yeah. right? Massive. One of the biggest in the world. We're one of the biggest exporters we know of milk per head milk products per head, milk powder per head, and also one of the biggest exporters of beef. There's very, very few exporters of beef because most people actually consume their own stuff. So yes, we export yeah. huge amounts. That means we have huge herds. And what we know in Ireland is that the farming population, if you talk about our grandparents or our great-grandparents, almost every Irish person is two or three generations out of the field. We yeah. all have farmers true, in the background, true, right? True, yeah. Okay, we, were, we had a huge agricultural population in the 19, up until the 1970s. Massive agricultural population, right? And even if people listening to the podcast who are not from the country, they have a cousin who's a farmer, an uncle who's a farmer, et cetera, right? But the farming population has collapsed in terms of the amount of farmers out there, right? Yeah. Yet the herds have increased. Now, what that presents is a massive, massive dilemma. How do you manage a herd if you've no farmers, right? And how That's you good do, point. Right, because, you know, a herd is live animals. Yeah, right? yeah. You have a herd, the average herd now is about 120 cows, right? 120 cows are cattle yeah. with one farmer. The yeah. farmer can't keep his eye. So they've introduced these Fitbits, right? I know I'm going to talk about Boris Johnson, but I want to talk about herds of cattle. There's a man first. who needs a Fitbit. Exactly. Right. <laughs> but I don't want to talk about Boris Johnson, but I want to talk about innovation and how it changes countries. So you put this Fitbit on the cow. Yeah. And <laughs> did you know that when a cow is in heat, do you know how you know a cow's in heat? No, David, I don't. She walks more. Okay. Because she's looking for a mate. So this is the oh, really yeah, okay. deep evolutionary reason. So when a cow is coming on heat, she begins to start looking around the herd saying, who am I going to shag? Right? Okay, who am I <laughs> Who's, up for it? Who's up for it? You can fancy it. You know, exactly. The last slow set. Okay. So the farmer then gets a tweet or a little text yeah. from the Fitbit to say, oh, she's on the move now. Yeah. 
So you know that that cow is coming on heat, right? Yeah. Think about this, right? And of course, the other thing that they, they cows do when they're on heat is they masticate less. They chew less. Right. Because they're all frisky. They're all up yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. So these are, I'm off my food. I just, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Don't know what happened to me appetite, right? But I find this fascinating because this for me is real innovation. Yeah. Because it yeah, doesn't, yeah. it's not like reinventing the wheel. What you're basically doing is we know that we have a big herd. We know we have a collapsing farming population. How do we control the herd? Right. And we also mm. know that it's very hard to get people to work in farming these days because yeah. wages are low. And do you remember the whole idea we were talking about with Martin Sanbu is that the way in which you increase farm wages for farm laborers and from farmers mm. is you increase the productivity. Yes. It's yeah. the idea of this. And the way you increase the productivity is introducing these little small innovations. And the problem is when people talk about innovation is they don't realize that it's these tiny little wins tiny little victories all the time yeah. that make economies grow. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. And when we're talking about... They kind of smooth out all those little obstacles and stuff exactly. and it makes things easier to, to do. And it comes back to our fundamental point in the podcast all the time that economics is about evolution. Yeah. It's about small... It's this idea that the economy is a design without a designer. So there's nobody at the top orchestrating things and saying, if we push this button, right? And when you listen to the Tories which is interesting for the Tory party because the Tory party should be about the Conservative Party, the idea of Edmund Burke. Yeah. Okay? Longford man, John. Longford man, originally, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. Was, he came up with the term conservatives. Their idea is they would conserve things, they would take what is good, they'd build on what is good, there'd be nothing radical, and gradually, 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 the society would build on traditions. And his idea that tradition was important because tradition is something that suggests that human thought it was worth keeping. And if it was worth keeping, tradition or a legacy, well, then you keep going, keep going. So that's the, yeah. the innate essence of conservatism is to conserve, right? Yeah. And what you have, it seems to me now, with Johnson, is a conservative party whose DNA is not to conserve, but to destroy, right? This idea of move fast and break things, as the yes. those sort of Silicon Valley people would say, right? Yeah, yeah. And to keep the UK in a constant state of churn, of destruction, of anxiety. And the reason they've got to keep the place in a constant state of anxiety, and this comes back to Brexit, we're going to talk about it, is that that is the only way that you will deflect from the real underlying problems in that society, which are manifest particularly if you, for example, get out of London yeah. and you drive up to the north or to the Midlands. Yeah. What you see is a level of poverty that far surpasses anything in this country, right? Far, far surpasses. So in order to actually keep the society in a state of flux, what you do is you continue to, what I would call, you know, the false flag operations that Putin has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnson yeah. has false flag operations too. And the classic false flag operation is the operation in the North with the protocol. So you weaponize the North. You, the poor old unionists, I mean, I mean, we've said it before. <laughs> we've said, I mean, you know. It's almost a mantra now at this stage. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> That's it. And it's true, right? So the DUP, like, you know, God. Lads, yeah, you know, yeah, we yeah. give you a hand here. We're not like, we will actually sit down and just say, mm. you are being played like a particularly foul sounding violin, yeah. right? The Tories are playing the unionists all the time. They inflame the unionist base. The unionists get all up in arms. Like it's so predictable, right? 
And all the time, the underlying issue that really annoys them is trade between the Republic and the North has gone through the roof because of Brexit. Yes, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But this is the thing. So, and this is what... But why are they not seeing that? Because they don't want to see it. Because trade between the North and the South s- suggests that this all-Ireland economy is growing. Yeah. So what we're going to do in this podcast, John, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Boris Johnson and the Tories are weaponizing various parts of the UK political firmament to stay in power, to enhance the anxiety and to deflect from the underlying problems, which are the result of 40 or 50 years of economic policy aimed at destroying the manufacturing base in the UK. And once you destroy the manufacturing base, you destroy those little moments of innovation that we talk about. Yeah. Because the moments of innovation are the people in their backyard, like tinkering around and trial and error. And that that's what all great innovation. If you look at innovators, right? They're not geniuses. Mm. They're usually sort of engineering type of people who are just tinkering around, playing, yeah. like, like playing with Lego. Yeah, yeah, And then yeah. you say, oh, that, wow, that works. And away we go. So that's what we're going to talk about. By the way, if you want amazing economics, politics, science, literature, high arts, low arts, Dorky Book Festival is on two weeks' time. Dorkybookfestival.org. Check it all out. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, Mark, as I'm sure you already know, this week is the Platinum Jubilee I party. I actually didn't know. The party of all party gates in That's, London. So, okay, okay. I am a committed anti-royalist. Yes. I always Good have man. been. It's, no, it's really deep in me. Yeah. In fact, we have a great mug in this house that I tell you about. When Shan was in school up in East Belfast, right? I don't know, the Queen's Jubilee or 25th. Or, well, it was 1977, Anarchy in the UK. Yes. Johnny Rotten, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And everyone in Shan's school was given a mug Right? With a picture of the Queen on it. And we now still have it in the house. And every time a proper Republican comes in for a cup of tea, we always always give the Queen's mug. (laughs) 
It's just like an ongoing family <laughs> joke. Really, yeah, 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 it's some achievement, though. I mean, it's, what is it, seventy-five years? But who am I talking to? I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Who do you to? think you're talking to? The editor, the Spectator here. <laughs> I mean, it, it is it is still one of the most ludicrous ideas. A monarchy in the twenty-first century. It's just the tourist thing. That's all it is. It works for the tourists. But anyway. It's a distraction again. It's, well, this is, this is the point. It, it, that was another big distraction. And actually, last week in English politics, I'm not going to bore you with the ins and outs of it, but it was full of distractions and false flags, perhaps, as you put it. Like Rishi Sunak. <laughs> the funniest thing is, I'm going to switch the off. Oh, completely. <laughs> well, he introduced this £15 billion package. To help for inflation and things like that, exactly. to subsidise things. Yeah, you know, and they introduced the windfall tax for all the energy companies who were making money hand over fist because of inflation. And Labour are up in arms going, that was our idea. You know, <laughs> and it's kind of a big, so what? Well, well you I, know? Think, I think this is the key thing. So let's talk about the politics of distraction, mm. right? That if you are ruling by press release, the politics of ruling by press release. So what you do is, rather than figure out a long-term strategy, you employ dozens of marketeers, ad men, publicists, etc. Yeah. And all they do is fill the zone with shit. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's exactly what they're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. So every time the UK government, and our government to an extent, but our government is less... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, well, le- it, it's, it's kind of less shameless... You know, if you don't own up to how many children you have yourself, if you're not responsible for that, you're hardly going to be responsible for a, a nation of 60 million. But let's let's go with this. It's a fair point, actually. It is a fair point, you know. It is a fair point. But I, what I want to talk about is this, this idea that after 40 years, maybe 50 years of explicitly targeting the industrial working class as the enemy within for many, many years, even despite three terms of Tony Blair's government, because the Labour government did what Labour governments do, they tried to spend money, etc. What you have is a profound hollowing out of the industrial bone marrow, so to speak, of the United Kingdom. And the Brexit idea, the reason that Brexit, that Johnson doesn't want to get Brexit done, as he keeps talking about, is he needs what I would call Brexiternity. Brexit to go on for eternity. And the reason he needs this is he has to, what they call in America, they have to, he has to embolden the base, right? He has to throw red meat out to the base. And one of those pieces of red meat is that we are in the UK, that is, a type of a medium-term war against this fictitious enemy called the European Union. Yeah. Where nobody in the European Union cares anymore, right? As far as the European Union says, okay, that's done. Yeah. Like, right? We have a problem it's just in North. torn in the side. Right. But why is this going on? Because the UK needs, not the UK, the Conservative Party needs to keep the, what they used to call the Red Wall, which was the Labour voting parts of the Midlands and the North of England, okay? Mm. They need, to, actually, by the way, did you see the Twitter spot between speaking of the North of England, Jamie Carragher? And no. Gallagher. No, right? no. I was just thinking, it was over Liverpool and Man City. Oh, and I was just thinking, what have the Irish given to the English? Jamie Carragher and Liam Gallagher. <laughs> I was thinking, two second generation paddies having a go at each other. It's actually really good. And Gallagher, what, what his, big, his big thing was, he says to Carragher, Cara, for a scouse, you've got shite banter. 
<laughs> I thought it was good. Anyway, but think of the north of England, yeah. right? When you look at the statistics of impoverishment in the north of England, right? They are the people who voted Brexit. Why do they vote Brexit? Because eventually you need somebody else to blame for years and years of neglect. And they have been neglected, those people, right? Those people in the industrial yeah. heartland. And of course they vote Brexit because they have real serious economic issues. And it's much easier to wave the flag, to stir up nationalism, to do all these things, rather than say, actually, we're going to do what the Tories talk about, this levelling up, yeah. which is much, much harder. So what I think is going to happen is all the way up to the next election, you are going to get Brexit and Northern Ireland and the EU and the Northern Irish Protocol and the Irish bloody border and all this sort of stuff because they need to keep the distraction going. And this distraction going takes away from the real fundamental issue, which is the profound inequalities, social, geographical, yeah. and opportunity-wise in the United Kingdom. Can I just ask you, though, surely there's a point where, if not the people, that a large part of the UK business community were Remainers. And they're the ones who are suffering and they're the ones who it's been, they're being put upon. Surely there's a point where they go, enough, that's it, enough. Yeah, there is. And I think the way in which, I mean, the Tories have lost London, if you think about it, right? That yeah. metropolitan elite is antithesis to Brexit. They've lost Scotland, obviously. Yeah. They're in the process of losing most of Northern Ireland or a significant chunk of Northern yeah. Ireland. But that's a different question, right? And it's, it's much deeper. So therefore, what we said about Boris Johnson two years ago when he got in, he <laughs> said he had yeah. this blue collar and red trousers vote, yeah. right? See, the red trousers poshies of the shires, not outside London. Yes, okay? yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, the yachties and the yeah. red trousers, right? yeah. which is a bad look. Okay? Terrible look, yeah. It's a brutal look, right? And the cravat. And the cravat <laughs> and the pink shirt. Yeah, right? yeah. And the, the sort of tweed jacket, but it's sort of, it's sort of like square tweeds. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay. So that's a particular look, right? And then the blue collar workers, right? And he's managed to fuse the two of them together. But the common ground, because there is no cultural common ground between those two, the only common ground is nationalism. Yeah. So the red trousers are kind of rule Britannia nationalists and the blue collar are kind of anti-foreigner nationalists. Yeah. And you get those two together and that masks this extraordinary thing. If you look at statistics from the UK. Yeah, go on, give us a few stats there. Okay, so the the Brits are, as I always said, and this is what I always say because very civilised societies keep good statistics and the Brits are very good at statistics, right? Okay, the Office of National Statistics, the ONS in the UK is really, this is, you know, if you go on their website, it's phenomenal. What Nerdsville for you. Yeah, it's great. It's really, really good. But they they have this, they have deprivation indices, right? And they talk about major English cities during the pandemic, but the pandemic wasn't the the cause of this. It's during the pandemic that they took these things. A fifth of the population is what they call income deprived, right? So these are people living in poverty. 21% of people in Manchester, 22% of people in Birmingham, 23% of people in Liverpool, and 25% are living in poverty. This is extraordinary, right? Another all-party committee looked at the the 225 so-called left-behind neighbourhoods. So this was the idea that the left-behinds were voting for Brexit, right? And they found that the bottom 10% of council wards, so these council areas, right, were lacking in what they call basic social infrastructure, which is heat, 
which is food, which is yeah. enough food, right? Which is enough heat, which is proper. I mean, it's extraordinary. Right? This, this is 2.4 million people. They also look at this recent parliamentary report. says one in six in the UK live, that's about 10.5 million people. I think there's only 5 million people on this island. Yeah. Are in this country. There's yeah, yeah. seven odd on the island, right? But 10.5 million people in England living in relative low income. That means that their actual income is 60% below the median income. Right? How can you survive on that? Well, uh, this is the extraordinary thing. If you look at the dole in the UK, yeah. right? The dole is so low in the UK. I don't know how they survive, but I'll give you some, some other statistics. This is what... These are the people who voted for Brexit. This is yeah, the interesting yeah, thing, right? Well, they just wanted to get out of that. And anything that, that you might think will get you out of a, a hole like that, you, 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 you vote do, for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course yeah, yeah. you would. So YouGov poll, right at the start of this year, 37% of respondents couldn't afford to heat their homes during the winter. 37%, Jesus. right? Yeah. This is before the increases. Then they took another thing, which is extraordinary. Those earning less than 15 grand a year, which is such a tiny income, right? They, they found that if these people were faced with a necessary expense of 850 quid, so mm. let's say something happened and they had to come up with 850 quid, the number of people who couldn't afford it could at all rose to 33% for those people earning 10 grand a year and less. I mean, this is, these are tiny incomes. 53% of all adults renting their homes couldn't afford an 850 bill. They just couldn't afford it, Right. 37% of adults in the northwest of England in total and 33% in the northeast in total couldn't afford this, okay? Wow. And 50% of unemployed adults had no way of generating 850 quid of expenses if it happened. I mean, that's the reality. That's Brexit. Yeah. That is Brexit, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what Johnson is doing all the time is trying to inflame these people to get their backs up to have these false flag operations to deflect from real economic and social deprivation. Now, it's not that we are in any way angels in this regard, right? The Irish figures, sure. 10% of Irish people live in poverty. Yeah, It's yeah, one yeah. in 10, yeah, but that's yeah. half the British figure. Yeah. So, you know, John, a fascinating, fascinating statistic just about the UK, because again, this is, we're not like UK bashing here. What we're talking about is this is a society, an economy that's going backwards, right? When we first went to London, in yeah. the 1980s, when we were like fucking schoolboys and students yeah, yeah, or whatever, yeah. right? And got jobs working on sites and working in bars, Living right? in bed sits with All 10 people in. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Actually, I didn't do that. I was a little swanker. Oh, yeah, yeah. Of course anyway, you were, Anyway, anyway, were. anyway. The Irish household median income, not the average, the median, right? Yeah. Was half of that of the UK. Half of that. Yeah. Today, the median household income in Ireland is 46,000 euros, 471. Similar figure in England is 31,400 sterling, which is 37,000 euros, meaning that the Irish median household income now is 25.4% higher than the equivalent in England. And when we wow. were kids, our median income was only half of theirs. Now that shows you one society going one way and another society going the other way. What, what I find amazing is from a country that used to be very rich, this is the country that used to be the richest country in the world. Yeah. To have got to this situation so quickly and so profoundly is an extraordinary indictment of economic policy thinking in Whitehall. So can I just take you back 
for when you're saying about he wants to keep Brexit going, is part of the reason for that the fact that initially he was banking on doing trade agreements with the likes of China, Russia, all these places, all these places, anyone bar the EU essentially. And of course, that's now all up in the air because of Russia invasion of, of Ukraine. And China being... China's on the other side. China's on the other side. So those trade agreements aren't up for grabs anymore. Even that, remember we were talking about the spectator there. So imagine imagine somebody reading the spectator. Yeah. Very, very, very assured in their sense of economics, but usually never having studied economics at all, right? Because economics is sums. And what you noticed about a lot of the spectator people, they're not good at maths. It's like why posh people are never engineers. Have you ever noticed that? Posh people always yeah. study, they always study the classics. Apart from that, Dyson. He's Dyson, he, yeah. He was terribly the, posh. The tax-exiled Brexiteer. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, 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 right? yeah, that's true, that's true. But in general, in general, what you find is that posh people who write journalism study mm. classics and mm. geography. Not only, maybe not even modern geography, old geography, right? They're not good at sums, right? Yeah, yeah. But they pontificate about economics without ever having studied economics. And their whole idea is free trade agreements. And they say, that sounds right. Free trade, yeah, that's good, right? yeah. But that's based on the economics of Adam Smith. Actually, David Ricardo was our friend came up with, and who was the MP for County Leash. That's right. The things, yeah. the things you know, the things <laughs> from Emo House, you know, Emo House down County Leash, that's what he was knocking around at the time. Yeah, anyway. He was the original Emo, was he? <laughs> exactly. He was in he was in goth. He's eyeliner and <laughs> he, was, big he, was, he was listening to what's that band? You quite like them. My chemical romance. It's a my chemical romance, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was the and the cure emo, and stuff. the cure. No, no, the other one, the cult, the cult, the cult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She sells sanctuary. And actually, <laughs> you see David Ricardo singing, doing a <laughs> David Ricardo doing a karaoke of She Sells Sanctuary. That is the uh, that is, as an image in a, in a pub in County Leash. In a pub, in a pub in, in Mount Rath. Okay. <laughs> In fact, I know a good pub in Mount Rath that you could do it in, right? But I, I, we digress, right? We do. But to come back to the point, right, is that you have to produce something for tr- free trade to be good for you. Mm. Now, they talk about free trade, but the UK is the only country that I can think of that went into trade negotiations in the last 24 months. Most countries go into trade negotiations with the explicit aim of reducing tariff barriers. Yes. The UK went into a trade negotiation with the EU with the explicit objective of fucking increasing tariff barriers. I mean, this is economic nihilism at an alfresco rate, okay? Right. So then you think, all this is all, again, deflection. It's a total deflection because economics is ultimately about many things, but one of the things is geography. You do business with people you know. Yeah. You do business. We, You and I shop in the local shop yeah, because it's yeah, the yeah. local shop, right? That what happens is your trade patterns are always determined by proximity. So it's no surprise, therefore, that half of the UK's trade is with the EU. Sure. Right? Of course. And a quarter of the EU's trade goes the other way. Yeah. So apart from anything else, it, it, it's easier it's to easier. Trade, you with, trade with your mates or your neighbors. You trade, you do business with people you understand, yeah. right? Yeah. A fantastically weird statistic is the UK talks about China mm. all the time. The UK does more trade with the Republic of Ireland than it does with China. Yeah. Okay. The UK does more trade with the Republic of Ireland than it does with China, India, 
Brazil, right? These huge countries, okay? Right. We're their fifth largest trading partner. And the reason we are is because they're beside us. Yes. Now, when you talked about the Queen's Jubilee, mm. right? <laughs> when, when Lizzie Windsor got that gig in the early 50s, Ireland had this extraordinary statistic that 93% of our exports went to the UK. Yeah. Today, it's 11. We have right. completely decoupled from the UK, but the UK hasn't decoupled from us, which is amazing. We're still their fifth largest trading partner. Yeah. And the reason we did that... So that was a bit like um, your man from Coldplay, conscious decoupling. Oh, yes, <laughs> conscious decoupling. Chris Martin. Chris Martin. Uh, exactly. <laughs> who, 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 the one who was selling her own, smell of her own... <laughs> yeah, what's her name? Grimmett of that's, that's the I would unconsciously uncouple me. My business was around selling candles, <laughs> the essence of. Anyway, we digress. Go on, go on. Get back. JM's freaking out here. I can see he's doing this all the time. <laughs> but you do trade with people you know, right? Geography is important. We decoupled from the UK because we had to. And the reason we did it is because we changed profoundly our industrial base. We didn't have an industrial base. Then we got an American industrial base. That American industrial base decided that it wanted to use Ireland as a bridgehead to Europe. Yeah. So consequently, our patterns of trade are unusual yeah. because we actually created an entirely new industrial machine here in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, right? And that industrial machine is the most globalized, most open, most transparent. It is a problem because it's far too many multinationals, right? Sure. But ultimately, that's changed things. The UK has remained wedded to a sort of a type of a grind economy, right? So what they've done is they decided they would attack their or deflate their manufacturing base. At the same time, they'd take a massive bet on finance and okay, right. real estate yeah. and insurance and London. Yeah, but that, that was, I was just so going to your, say, finance is just based in London. I mean, there is yeah. no financial centre outside of London. There's a couple, there's a, in, in Edinburgh, when I was, when I was okay. used to work there, you used to have to go up to Edinburgh and the Scots who really believed they were great at money. Yeah. And they didn't really like paddies, right? The oh, East okay, Coast of right. Scotland, they're not really partial to us. And I'd come up with my song and dance routine from London and they'd be like, Cameron, Ferguson and Ferguson, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> but so there is an element, there's, there's an industry in Scotland, there's a finance industry in Bristol. Right. There's a small finance industry in Leeds and Manchester. But London is the big one. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, that bet paid off because they got huge, huge revenues from finance, right? From the city. Mm. With those revenues, they could then try and cushion the blow in the north and Scotland, right? So basically what they were doing is they were using but through, revenue. through benefits, though. I mean, Through benefits and through making the people more dependent. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's what it's going to say. Yeah, so they weren't kind of, it wasn't a, a reinvestment. It wasn't a reinvestment, it wasn't into innovation. It was yeah. basically to, to hold the line, so to speak, right? Yeah. Now, that model of finance, the one thing we know about finance is it moves very, very quickly. Mm. And Brexit is inconsistent with that because finance, what finance needs is it needs open markets, it needs open markets for talent. It needs the London needs to be able to do all the European Union's pension stuff. It needs to be the clearinghouse of the European Union, all that sort of stuff. Once you start putting up trade barriers, your finance begins to suffer. So what they have is this weird dilemma that the, the part of the economy that is really world-class, which is the city, they mm. have strangled with tariffs. And the part of the economy that they want to expand the manufacturing base 
They have also strangled because they have no free trade with Europe, right? And manufacturing is all now about supply chains. So nobody builds things from scratch anywhere, right? So something's made in Taiwan, something's made in Israel, something's made in Ireland, something's made in America, and it's put all together, right? So the idea that you could have a manufacturing base that was homegrown, that didn't depend on international supply chains, is an idea from the 19th century. And that's the sort of problem with the Tories. It's all nostalgia. It's all this nonsense about a great trading empire. Take out the trading bit and you have an empire. And what do empires do? The role of the empire is to bully the colony and to rob the colony. That's why you have an empire. Yeah. So you can't replace that or you can't superimpose a 19th century worldview on the 21st century, which is exactly what the Tories are trying to do. And now that they understand they can't do it, they create this Brexit forever idea. So they just keep the people in constant anxiety, a constant state of fear, an elevated state that they're at war with somebody, us or the EU or someone out there. It's the enemy outside that they've created, right? Batten down the hatches. And ultimately, it is the big lie. And the thing about the big lie is if you say it often enough, people will believe you. While I have you there, Doki Book Festival, What's Not to Love? One village, four days, 75 events, 100 speakers from all over the world, arts, science, culture, politics, economics, the whole lot. Check it all out at dokeybookfestival.org. And you never know, we might all go for a pint. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.